Myself, the Troop Scout leader, Dustin lives with Beeve. Across from me, the historian. Denim Wall, otherwise Smoking Dart. And in between the two wall boys, you have myself, Miles, a.k.a. Chief, runs with bins. Welcome back. Pleasure to be here. Happy to see everybody in the clubhouse. To kick this meeting off, as always, our straight arrow oath. Three fingers salute for those of you in uniform. For those of you in civilian clothing. Please place your hand over your heart. Repeat after me. A straight arrow tells the truth. A straight arrow loves nature. A straight arrow never uses a tool improperly. And a straight arrow is always against Bill H.R. 57, which would allow the importation of South American propane. We get a round table. Wimatanya. Wimatanya. Cheers. All right. Well, we're here. We're back again for season two, episode three. This one's called The Arrowhead, and I'll let the historian tell you a little bit about it. Yeah, so it's actually kind of interesting right off the bat. It's labeled Arrowhead without with a space in the middle, some places, on the DVD even. It's it's different between like the submenus in the DVD. I know. Everywhere <laughs> you look, it's a different spelling. The Arrowhead, as Arrowhead being one word, or Arrow and Head. Like, it, nah, so... As interesting, I guess, as that yeah, is. Yeah, IMDb has them spaced, so. Yeah, they're different everywhere I saw, including, yeah, just like on the same DVD. So even they didn't know. So this is episode three of season two, production code 5E04. Originally aired on September 28th, 1997. It's the 16th episode of King of the Hill for us. The episode is directed by Clay Hall. This guy's pretty well known around King of the Hill. We've seen him direct The Order of the Straight Arrow last season, as well as The Company Man already. He's worked on King of the Hills since the beginning. He doesn't. He only has seven director credits, but he's been a staple in the animation department, and he became uh, the supervising director. Uh, I'm not sure when, but he held that position until 2003, so yeah, he's quite a, a while. Yeah, he's a familiar name already. Yeah, yeah. And even more familiar is... Uh, the episode's writers. Oh, I know. Jonathan Abel and Glenn Berger. They're the, these are the writers of Kung Fu Panda, the whole trilogy. We talked about these guys before. They've written 11 King of the Hill episodes together. They've gone on to write Kung Fu Panda 1, 2, and 3, and they've had their hands in everything DreamWorks ever since. Monsters of Aliens, Trolls, Monster Trucks, Alvin the Chipmunks movies, SpongeBob movies. They've either written, the story has been invented, or they've done touch-ups on all those scripts. Like, and like they rarely not work together. They're they they're like are a duo. yeah they're a pair. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. They're they're good buddies, I guess. They uh they also wrote a video game. Did you read up on that? No, I didn't. Which so, one? Um, the Kung Fu Panda video game. No, no, no. Oh. It was like back in nineteen like ninety nine or something. Oh, they was did the one a, I've played. They did a PlayStation like point and click adventure game. Oh, like an adventure game. Yeah, it's like like an old LucasArts game. Yeah, pretty much. Okay. Yeah, so you have the like little Monkey eye Island. You move, yeah, you move it okay. across the screen, and so basically you're a dragon. Okay. And uh, the game is called Blazing Dragons. Blazing Dragons. <laughs> yeah, because 
Yeah, because one of the voice actors is Cheech Marin. Yes, what? Yeah, not the lead, but he's like his best man or whatever. So it's of bas- course. So it's basically like uh, Knights of the Round Table, like King Arthur. Okay. Uh, except you're like just a dragon, like not even prince. Like you're not even a knight and you're in love with the princess. Oh, of course. Like Princess Flame. And uh, you basically have to become a knight to marry her, and that's what the game is. And uh, So you're a dragon who needs to become a knight. Pretty much, to but marry he, the princess. But, he's, but he becomes king. But he blazes? Um, well, that's the thing. I looked up if there's any <laughs> weed references, and there's not. <laughs> All right, okay. Yeah, anyways. Just, just Cheech. Just Cheech. So I think it was just a way to get you to buy in, because there was like a Canadian TV animated series that launched at the same time that was supposed to like pair with it. So Called Blazing like, Dragons. Uh, it was. It had something else. Are the are are these guys Canadian? Um, I don't think so. Oh, well, maybe next time they show up, we'll do some more research. <laughs> I actually yeah, did quite. So, in part of my research, I well, I shouldn't even say that. That's cheating. I happened to watch Kung Fu Panda again. We had a <laughs> we had a snow day. We were snowed in. There was like almost a foot of snow outside. I just kind of like put on Kung Fu Panda and hung out. So we watched that, and uh, that's just a fucking fantastic movie. And then I went to go do research for this episode, and I realized it was by the it was the one written by them. I'm sure. I'm sure that was a uh, yeah research for you. Yeah, Kung Fu, <laughs> I like that movie, man. I I, I think um, I like Kung Fu Panda two more mm-hmm. because I don't like that they're like so mean to Poe for the first like half of the movie. Like I just want everybody to be cool with Jack Black, so Jack Black can just do his thing, mm-hmm. and he really gets to do his thing in Kung Fu Panda 2. I remember Kung Fu Panda 2 was in the theaters at the time I worked there, and it was just one of those shows that, like, when you would go to do, like, a theater check, you'd just, like, hang out for, like, 20 it's, more minutes than you should. Yeah. And, like, I, th- I watched that movie in bits and pieces, and it, I, it was actually enjoyable. I was like, oh, man, can't wait to see what he does next. It's, it's a really good, it's a really good movie. I, like, yeah, I, I, me and my girlfriend were talking about this, and it's, like, the movie, it... The way I looked at it, it was like the villain had a reasonable purpose. Well, yeah, he does. Like, I, I thought, like, he was totally, you could get on his side because it's an admiral cause that he's fighting for. Yeah. But and, he's just on the other side of Poe. But, like, they all they do a good job of, at every point, making every character super meaningful. Mm-hmm. And everything, like, just works really well moving that whole story forward. Especially, yeah, the villain, like, and the goose that... With the feather, like all that, like it feels to me like kid stories are the way to go about classic storytelling with characters, like in the most emotional way, because you can just get away with so much. That is true. A lot of the elect- intellectuals that I have met have gone into children's writing, and it like it totally makes sense. It does. I understand that because it's also actually because there's a temptation to be so upfront about mm-hmm. it, and you get that pass in children's entertainment totally i just watched a star is born um Mm -hmm. and that just felt like it was lacking in purpose and i think that like if they could have been more pushed it harder i think if they but if but then they they walked the dangerous line of being realistic and losing that (laughs) (laughs) but anyway kung fu pan is great I'm going to say, I'm going to have to watch fucking Kung Fu Panda. I'm going to not have much to say on this entire yeah. podcast. <laughs> Man, I'd love to do just an episode on Kung Fu Panda. Maybe yeah, next snow day. It's it's funny. Where I think last time Elder Little Pond was here with us, we were laughing and joking about how mild and moderate our climate is around here. Yeah. <laughs> we've been like fucking destroyed by winter for the last... 
10 day segment. Yeah, man. Yeah, and, to some, and we say a foot of snow. To some people, that's nothing. So, I mean, like, we, yeah. we don't have a lot of means I mean, to fix it. <laughs> like, we do have some. We have at least, hey, at least one of us in this room drives plow. Yeah, we ran out of salt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the whole town ran out of salt. <laughs> yeah, we're on an island, so. So, the synopsis for Arrowhead is Hank grows jealous of Peggy's friendship with an archaeologist after Hank finds an arrowhead in his lawn. Before we get into talking about the episode, um, just to continue, Texas City Twister didn't have one, but uh, the gun nut one had uh, the director intro slide. Yep. So these are just a little... That was like the target in... How to fire a in, rifle without really trying. In how to fire a rifle without even trying, it was it was a yeah it was a target being shot and with the episode info on it. This one was is like an animatic, kind of like pencil drawing yeah. of Hank's head. Yeah. Kind of, and then a little like tune sort of starts to play in the background, and Hank head just kind of bobs back and forth, and then. And then uh, Arrow shoots from off screen and squishes through his head <laughs> with an odd sound effect. That's like a pretty good representation of this episode. Yeah, and then and then he kind of stops and goes, whoa. <laughs> and, it, and then Arrowhead, two words, spiral and like come on the screen like it's like 1995 and I'm working on my school's com- editing software oh, yeah, on the computer. Yeah. Like it's like super basic. Yeah. But yeah, just like a two second little thing. Um, that that conveys a lot in just two seconds. Yeah, because like yeah. that's pretty much what this episode is about. Yeah, it's I guess they were just the directors just, just decided to do them, but before their episodes, I guess it's probably so when you're looking through tapes, maybe you can remember. you can it, it, like instantly identify it. Uh, that's just an assumption of mine, but that's I mean that's a good purpose for it. Just so you can recognize in an instant. Totally, and it's got some personality to it too. Getting into the episode, we have no cold open. Yeah, we just have this overview shot of Arlen, much like the pilot episode, mm-hmm. uh, with a very similar tune that you just heard. Yeah, I like that. I like that. I like the music in this episode a lot. That music was great. Like you could have told me, like this is like the new Dwight Yoakam. <laughs> like sure, and I would have <laughs> thrown it out the window. But we do meet a new member of the family in this first in this opening scene. Hank shows off his new John Deere 518R walk behind tiller. Yeah, with a five mile per hour motor. <laughs> I believe this model comes with a hat. <laughs> it's funny. I look like just looking briefly at that. It's just like gives such um, like more credit to the writers and their attention to detail. Everything that Dale says and describes about the walk behind tiller is. Correct. Like the five horsepower Briggs and Stratton. I'm sure it came with a hat too. <laughs> yeah. I, I got a, I got a friend. We have a friend who's, who's a heavy duty mechanic and he's extremely proud to work on John Deere equipment. <laughs> and he would be remiss if I did not mention <laughs> John Deere guys love their free hats. They, <laughs> they love their John Deere guys just love John Deere and they yeah. love to, to tell everybody that they love John Deere. And the way they do that That's, is with a hat. Yeah, they do. <laughs> um, you only get the hat when you buy. 
<laughs> it's part. It's part. It's part of a club. Exactly. It's membership. <laughs> and I'm, I'm so I'm so happy Hank actually gave it to Dale because like Hank's never gonna wear that hat. Mm. Like, and Dale. I wore like that he it had so it in the back proudly. pocket. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is like the first time we see his like officially like completely bald head, shining bald yeah, head, and that, and that continues through the rest of the series. I think after after that point, there's no in between anymore. I think we do get a glimpse of him without a hat in Peggy's flashback dream of Hank's funeral because Dale takes right. it off in respect to Hank. So that just you're very right. Yeah, but but it didn't shine. It did not shine. <laughs> it was a sad moment. It'd be inappropriate. He might have had a little fuzz. <laughs> and I guess that would be Peggy's imagination. That's true. So you never know if that's really real. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We learned in this episode she's not the smartest. Exactly. Well, we don't learn. Actually, we learned it. The very next scene. (laughs) Now, Bobby, there is a lot you can learn from PBS, thanks to the support of viewers like me. (laughs) I'm not saying PBS is dumb, but I don't know what Peggy's getting from it. Well, I mean, she was excited that month, so she... (laughs) So she threw a donation out there, and now she's... Fucking in charge of it. Yeah, exactly. No, she's proud of it. She's part owner. Yeah. Um, I love that Hank's trying to get Bobby to come out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Go meet the new Roto Tiller, son. <laughs> and, and I love when we cut back to it that Boomhauer, with his camcorder again, yeah. is filming this moment for Hank. It's like it's a uh, birthday of Bobby or something. It is, but I mean... I mean, I want to know more about Boomhauer's camcorder. <laughs> well, it's funny because I didn't even really pick up on it. So I saw your notes here and realized, oh, yeah, like this is like back-to-back episodes with Boomhauer and a camcorder. And we find out in like a few seasons on, uh, Boomhauer goes away for the weekend and Bobby's looking after his place. And Hank and Peggy stop by and it's set up in his bedroom connected to the TV. <laughs> Like he makes sex tapes and also films that. That's what I was was trying. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Was like this dude bought that for this, but he's just using it for for Dale's twister chasing and. Yeah, so it's natural disasters, new rototillers, and making fuck on camera. (laughs) Did you say making fuck? No, I didn't. <laughs> but I love it. Then while Boomhauer's filming, we get the perspective from the camcorder. Mm-hmm. And Hank's face as the rototiller just explodes because it hit a rock. Yeah, honestly, like by the way he looked, it looked like he ran over his foot. Yeah. <laughs> he was shaking. His yeah. glasses were like in several states. <laughs> Made in America cannot just be a marketing gimmick like Dolphin Safe. It's got to stand for something. (laughs) Dolphin Safe and Hope isn't a marketing gimmick? See, I was going to comment on that, too, because, like, that's got to be some sort of cheap-ass rototiller blade. Like, that thing is meant to, like, chew up the earth. Like, like, that thing's, like, this, like, the, I don't know, like, smaller on the palm of my hand, and it just destroys it. I know. It's a bit, it was a bit weird, but it gives Peggy an um, opportunity to show us how dumb she is. Sorry, how smart she is. I think you mean how smart Bobby is. We learned in school you don't call them Indians anymore. You call them Native Americans. It's like saying same-sex partner instead of Bobby. Bobby. (laughs) (laughs) I believe it's indigenous now. I don't know if that carries over to the States. They still say Indian in the States. Everywhere. Like, literally everywhere. Yeah, I was taught that wasn't cool. It's not. It's definitely, like... (laughs) 
Yeah, yeah it's definitely not cool. And in Canada, we, we say indigenous now. But um, the signage, like, on the road, at least in Washington State, says, like, Indian Reserve everywhere. Like, in Canada, they would have had that taken down oh, yeah. years and years ago. Well, like, it's, it's strange how it, how it evolves because Bobby is being, like the, like, the proper one here and, like, saying what it is. But now it's, like, incorrect to call uh, indigenous peoples native First Nations, you know. So, like, it, it continues to change and evolve, I guess. But in Texas in 97, it doesn't <laughs> yeah and even and even having said that i i think in any official capacity you would say indigenous but if you says if you say native american you're not offending anybody no. you might be corrected but like only in like only if you were like talking to a customer or something like mm -hmm. that but like you wouldn't uh native american isn't derogatory like saying indian is because yeah. i mean Indian is pretty ignorant. Well, it I was mean, born they... from an ig ignorant. Yeah, it's like, oh, this is India. Yeah, <laughs> fucking idiot. <laughs> <laughs> You're Indians. <laughs> Write a map, would you? Like, yeah. What the fuck? It's, it is ridiculous. People in history were just fucking dumb. Like, yep. Yeah. That's true. That's very true. I like how Hanks made an America comment. Kind of reflects the fact that. The arrowhead being a representation of an indigenous tribe being like the definition of made in America, <laughs> being stronger than a rototiller made in America. That's a good way to put it. I think it's I think it's a funny little mirroring, just a moment, like one force versus the other. I liked it. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I think it sets up well for some more pieces in this episode so back outside uh hank is not able to use his sweet new rototiller that he bought like my god that guy invests a lot of money in his lawn they're cheap <laughs> canadian just... tires gone for like 1200 bucks yeah and he just spent really? what they're expensive damn yeah. like like it was a couple episodes ago he spent like six grand on new grass and he's yeah. just like chewing it up with a rototiller well that was already fucked up by the ants so yeah. and honestly like i was being conservative like i cut the average lawn size in half <laughs> and i mean john deere is expensive already. Oh, yeah. They, they come with a hat. Quality man's product. It's made in America, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so Hank's uh, using a rake to uh, rake up the small patch in his lawn that he chewed up at the rototiller when he stumbles across another Native American artifact. Now, he doesn't know what it is, but he immediately fastens it to a, a light string inside <laughs> his garage, I guess, and where Bobby <laughs> and Joseph come in. And Hank gives them a very uh, disturbing <laughs> definition of what he thinks the tool to be. Well, I don't know much about Indians, but I do know tools. And if I had to guess, I'd say you jam one of these in the back of a white man's skull, twist the handle like so, and then your blood runs out through the hole here. Yep. That's what it's for. So after Hank says that um, to Bobby and Joseph, Bobby goes on to say that he believes that the tribes that uh, originally inhabited that area of Texas were mostly peaceful. So Hank, being the uh, the guy that he is, he doesn't want to use a tool improperly. So he decides <laughs> to to venture over to the Gribble's house, knowing he's and he's well aware that Dale's not going to be there. But he's actually <laughs> he's actually looking for John Redcorn. Well, I'm going to get to the bottom of this. I'd hate to use a tool improperly. And, of course, Nancy in a bathrobe answers the door. And everybody awkwardly dances around the fact that Hank knows and exactly where to find John Redcorn in the middle of the afternoon. 
And I would like to touch on that. This breaks another one of the do's and don'ts because Hank touches his neck. <laughs> He's, but the, yeah, I am. I believe that he. This is a moment that he would touch his neck because he's looking down i bet you're right i i I would give him a pass on this one for sure like this is like well again it goes with this episode how it's just kind of like a classic standard episode that's his classic standard hank doing his classic standard true Uh, but i love this is our so is this the first jonathan joss appearance as redcorn yeah definitely this is the first uh speaking role by John Redcorn that we've seen since uh, episode three of The Order of the Straight Arrow. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's he's been in many episodes since then, but uh, not in speaking roles. So, yeah. Hank, Nancy has a therapeutic massage today for her migraines. <laughs> That's his first line, and it's so funny because it is like a running joke throughout the, the series that, like, everyone is well aware of the affair, and Nancy and John Redcorn... Both are so trained to instantly just be like, oh, it's my migraines. I need to have a session with John Redcorn or I, the opposite. I love – I feel like that's the line that they would have had all, like in the audition for everybody. <laughs> it's just like something about Dale Gribble, something about Nancy, some of migraines. Like yeah. we need to know how he says those words. Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. And that's – yeah, that's probably pretty close to what got him the job. And I love that they could just keep relying on it because Dale keeps believing it. Oh, like. it's great. I love it. <laughs> in this episode especially. If we want to take a moment just to even talk about Redcorn. So I've done some research on the Cato tribe. Mm. Um, that hasn't been introduced to us yet, but the Cato tribe is from that area. Can you spell it out for the audience? So yes, of course. It's C-A-D-D-O. That I was confused with another one for yeah. a <laughs> short amount of time in my research. I had like was, eight different spell yeah, guesses. On I Googled it, and, I, and then when I turned on the subtitles, I saw what they were actually saying. Oh man, so um, smart to have the DVDs. So anyway, just in my in my research of that, and I found a very famous Cato uh, native whose name is Jerry Redcorn. No, mm. <laughs> oh, yeah, I think that that's probably where they got the uh, where they got the idea. He's an Oklahoman artist who single handedly revived traditional Cato pottery. No way. He's still alive, so at this time he would have been still doing his thing. So I think, I, I, I bet you they probably looked around before they named the characters. I bet you they did the research. So That's awesome that they yeah. chose him. I think that's cool, yeah. So Redcorn's a Cato name. So, I mean... That's really sweet. You, you know. I didn't really expect it to ever connect to anything like that. I thought maybe it was like a friend of one of the creators or just... Yeah, I thought, like, I thought maybe because like... But no, that's really cool. Because they did do they do they do research about it. So oh, definitely. Like, I'm not surprised. I'm impressed, but not surprised. Hank eventually finds out from John Redcorn that the tool is in fact uh, used for straightening the shafts of arrows. It's like this weird. It looks like it's made of bone. I'm not really sure, but it's a T shape with a hole in it, and it's like pretty simple. Yeah, and it's just kind of ironic how it's a peaceful tool for peaceful tribes, and Hank takes it, describes it as like a death machine, but uses it for a peaceful task in his peaceful garage. So I just thought that was kind of funny. Well, he's just testing it out. <laughs> He'd hate to use the tool improperly. Yeah, it's like it's like using a sword to cut bread. Well, it's not like he was using the tool to like jam into someone's neck. He was using it to like <laughs> hang on a string. So that's improper of no matter what it is, because those tools don't exist. In a pinch, though, you could jam it into someone's brain stem, right? 
<laughs> yes, but that's true of almost any tool. <laughs> that is that is true of almost he, any tool. He, ma- he makes one good point, but I'm not sure that I believe is next. Hank, think about what you're doing. It is wrong to take what belongs to another person and... John Redcorn. <laughs> well, food for thought. <laughs> I love it. Oh, the irony. Yeah. And John Redcorn, he's still got his towel around his waist and his, his face... Towel. Yeah. And his face goes, like, instantly beat red. He's like, oh, anyway, gotta go. And he just yeah. disappears back. I did the note the blushing was uh, interesting. It was, uh, it was very red. Yeah, it happened twice in this episode. It was very apparent. To Peggy as yeah. well. Yeah. That was um that that was an interesting bit of animation on both parts. Maybe there's season two trying new shit, you know? Yeah. Just kinda going at it. But I love it. He sends Hank uh to a university to find somebody who might want to buy it. <laughs> so he goes down to Arlen University uh to go find somebody to buy this artifact and you might notice in the background uh there's this banging song playing it's a it's a nice little reggae jam and some of you might recognize it as really you think anybody's gonna recognize (laughs) some random ska number from the late 90s (laughs) so some of you may recognize it as every time you go away this rendition done by eddie levette so yeah, this song originally written by Daryl Hall and John, John Oates, what? Hall also Oates? known as Hall and Oates. Yes. Really? Yeah, they wrote it in 1980, and then it was covered by covered by John Young in 1985, five years later, and that was probably one of the most popularized versions of the song until in 1999, when that record-breaking album. Best Reggae Hits Volume 3 came out, and track three on that album was Eddie Levette. So this Every is time before you that. Go away. So yeah, that. So this is, this is before that. That w- yes, and you know what's even crazier? That's not the song that's in the episode. No, it's not. No, it's totally well, not. That's not crazy because it didn't exist. But yeah, no, because but it, that's what you totally thought it was. Because yeah, I just googled those the the song lyrics essentially. Uh huh. But I didn't listen to the song. I didn't really like the song. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'm not going to say it was... Ska is weird. Ska is, like, okay when Rancid does, like, one Ska song on a Every whole record. <laughs> but then, like, you don't, you know, but, like, if the next song is a Ska song, my, like, first reaction is just to skip it. Every time Ska's on, I do want to listen to Rancid. I don't know what that is. <laughs> it's a weird thing. But anyway, so the actual song is uh, called On My Mind... By, by Hoi Polloi, a band that uh, first became known to me in American Pie 2 soundtrack. For what song? On My Mind. This song. Okay. Alright, I, right. I, yeah, this is the song. This is the one. This this sounds like I'm about to be approached by some Hesher who's asking me to legalize hemp. Yeah. <laughs> but what I don't get is this song released in 2002. What kind of access does Mike Judge have to the future? 
I couldn't find I couldn't find how it, it it was possible, so I just I'm hoping somebody brings it to me. It was released in 2002. That was the first, the earliest release date I could find for it. It was very obscure. And that was on there. So, um, that was that uh, that <clears throat> that was on American Pie 2 soundtrack. That's on a soundtrack though. Yes. So that's not. I know, and I couldn't yeah. find I couldn't find the album. Like I tried hard. Maybe it was just an EP, or Maybe. like a single. I, uh, I mean, I just need more people to have access to Wikipedia that have this information. That's true. That's true. I hate it when they're red links. <laughs> so anyways, he is approached by some Hesher describing a uh, raw material that we can use for a multitude of things, and Hank's totally on board. He hates, hates those government <laughs> restrictions. So he eventually finds out that this substance is also known as marijuana. <laughs> And that transitions us into him finding the professor. But in the deleted scenes, um, after he finds the, uh, after he finds out that it's marijuana, it shows a few clips of him like dropping the sheet and falling and stump crawling and stumbling away. Well, well they, the, they really push it. We, oh yeah. Well, the dude like kind of like calls at him and shit. It's, it was a little funny, but yeah, That's then he goes funny. to see the professor. But before he gets inside, I don't know if you guys caught this or even remember, but it, was it made me giggle. That's right. They're breasts. Big deal. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, the meat is murder t-shirt. And that's he's there. He's looking at the no sexism shirt. <laughs> Yeah, Arlen University is just filled with, like, every campus stereotype you can imagine. Like, burnout slang and hemp. Like, dudes playing frisbee and hacky sack. There's these violent feminists, like, in his face. <laughs> the only thing I didn't see is a fedora. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't have enough time. <laughs> he didn't look under the stairs. So, I believe, Dustin, you have some info on said professor. Yeah, so he is voiced by Maurice LaMarche who uh, he's known for quite a few things, but I know him most uh, in Futurama. Is he Scruffy? <laughs> <laughs> no, Scruffy plays as himself. <laughs> no, he's he's known as Kip, uh, okay. Cal Calculatron, and my very favorite. Morbo wishes these stalwart nomads peace amongst the Dutch tulips. I'm sure those windmills will keep them cool. Windmills do not work that way. Good night. <laughs> Morbo, the newscaster. Yeah. Yeah. The big, yeah. Yeah, the, the guy with the, the big green alien yeah. with the big head. It's like a hammerhead or something. Yeah, it looks like a nutsack upside down. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so now every time I hear him talk, all I can think about is Morbo if he had sex with the dude from MASH. Which, uh, fuck MASH. Don't waste time talking about MASH. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I'm not kidding. <laughs> yeah, no, that's funny. It's funny. I remember like looking at Maurice when uh, we were doing research for our uh, our in between our season one and two episode, and I I read a little bit about him. He's like, he's known for one thing, and that's doing like a comically loud like belch, like different like animated shows. Uh, like called. Barney. Yeah, exactly. Like, and he's just like, is he Barney? No, he's not <sighs> Barney, but like he is like a jack of all trades voice actor. Like he does everything. Um, I do a pretty alright belch. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not do. fake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So one thing that I discovered doing the research for this episode, and a lot of people or a few people I saw online believed it to be the inspiration for this episode, that Mike Judge's father is actually an archaeologist, no and way. and also uh, a teacher at one point in his career. So uh, 
Dr. W. James Judge, a.k.a. Jim Judge, is the father of series creator Mike Judge. Uh, he's also an influential archaeologist from New Mexico. Uh, he earned his PhD. It's a good place to dig. Yeah, he earned his PhD from the University of New Mexico, and he's also a former director of the Shaco Center of the National Park Service, and he was also a professor at Fort Lewis College in Colorado. And uh, Dr. Judge was actually working uh, for a nonprofit organization in Ecuador when Mike Judge was born, so that's the reason why Mike Judge was born in South America. That's interesting. Yeah, it was uh, it was all totally new to me, and a lot of people were having like kind of like varying opinions of why this episode would be based around basically his father's life and career because he doesn't portray uh, an archaeologist in a very positive role whatsoever. No, but he does. He does portray the struggle of being an archaeologist, like of like of trying to convince people that places are worth spending the time slowly digging not to build something but to find history right like that's a hard sell some places and clearly in the middle of arlen this professor is willing to go to devious lengths to find a space to dig so yeah Yeah. i guess it it, it could be from just the experience of oh i know how hard it is for for an archaeologist to gain access to a dig site. Yeah. I could see that. Mm-hmm. And like like Mike Judge, everything he's ever written pretty much has been like some sort of like real event in his life or like some real person he's met. All his characters, like there's nothing that's, you know, essentially just his imagination. So, I mean, I'm sure that like he just had an idea for this episode and was like, well, there's not really a positive way to spin it. We need a, an antagonist to Hank in this episode, but you never know. It's great. I, 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 this episode is, this episode is a little light, mm-hmm. but I do think that it's a very good episode, mostly because it focuses so much on Hank and it really, really gets into Hank and it gets into Hank alone and not how the people in his family are never the ones against him. Like really he's against them, but they're never really, I mean, I guess Peggy does sign the, Thing over because she's angry at him but she he never views her as as his mm-hmm. roadblock he says as soon as she tells him that he says okay we're even so then it squares it with peg right like he gives her that the way i see it is that yes this show brings him such a fantastic antagonist and it makes for like a very obvious villain of the show but the real conflict of the overarching story is like Hank's marriage right exactly yeah so i and and the raising of their son yeah how peggy views like what's important for bobby's upbringing and hank's like come look at my new fucking rototiller yeah <laughs> like that literally like yeah that's exactly what happened yeah so when Hank, uh, when class is dismissed and Hank enters the professor's classroom, do you guys notice that he's uh, he's talking about the the city of Pompeii? Or do you guys know about the like the, the city of Pompeii? Uh, yeah, I know it's the like the, the yeah. I know, yeah. It's inf- it's infamous for that dude who. Was like, enough, I was yeah. about to say that. I was literally about to say what I know of Pompeii is the dude who was, yeah. who was like, what was he fucking? Yeah, just so, instantly burned, masturbating yeah, furiously. Like, like the the village of Pompeii, I guess, like had literally minutes before it was completely engulfed in ashes, and everyone like died and perished because that's why everyone is still like entombed, like running up staircases or like, you know, diving for cover. And this one dude realized he had like 90 seconds to live, <laughs> whipped his unit out. <laughs> <laughs> one last nut. 
But yeah, I just wanted to bring up Pompeii for that. <laughs> that like, yeah, that uh, fuck memes. What a way. How do I know more history from Pompeii from a fucking meme than anything else? You know who played in Pompeii? Pink Floyd. Orlando Bloom. Dude, actually, okay, Pink Floyd live. <laughs> Pink Floyd live in Pompeii is single greatest concert DVD of all time. Set the controls for the heart of the sun. Just YouTube it. Just YouTube it. Pause this podcast and YouTube it. <laughs> yeah. Was that the original, like, 1971 one that they yes. did? Yeah. 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 The, the DVD, I think, adds a bunch of stuff. But it's like, yeah, it's fucking amazing. There, there's, no, there's no crowd. They just play in, like, ruins. And it's, like, fantastic. Yeah, the first, like, people to play in that stadium in, like, 900 years. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And it's like it's so cool in 1971. Like oh, I'm so it's glad. even it's even before uh, Dark Side. Oh, crazy! Yeah, so it's like it's like old Pink Floyd. I'm glad it was Pink Floyd. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Hank makes it to the archaeologist <laughs> and tries to find out how much that this piece is worth. And the archaeologist, being devious as he is, kind of bluffs Hank and says, "Oh, it's not worth anything. Not more than a loincloth. What do those goes for? Ten bucks?" And Hank <laughs> does certainly does not know. Yeah, and he makes a point of making sure everybody knows he doesn't know. Uh, so he throws it in the garbage. Hank takes the ten bucks because he believes the innocent professor, and walks away. And we find the professor digging through the trash. He likes to dig. And he's a total dick too, right? He's totally belittling like the the Native American people and saying that they think everything's sacred. Well, and now hold just... on a minute. An Indian friend of mine said it was sacred. Let me explain something to you, Mr. Hill. To the Native Americans, everything is sacred. The sun, the dirt. You want to pay me for the air you've been breathing since you came in? That's sacred too. He doesn't have enough right to that air. I know. I think it's funny also the instant like monetization of the word sacred. Yeah. Like, Hank is automatically like, well, it's sacred, therefore it's worth a lot of money. Yeah. And then the, the even the teacher goes ahead and says, well, do you want to pay me for the air? Because that's sacred as well. Like, yeah, yeah. it's not like, I, I think it's funny the disconnect between what... What emotional value sacred has. Right? What a Native American values as 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 sacred doesn't retain any monetary value yeah and it, i think that's like an interesting point that they go i think they mean to point that out a oh i bit. definitely like they they definitely take a quite a few looks it, at it it is it is like i think this whole episode is a very good look at american north american mm-hmm. canadian especially very especially canadian um, like just our outlook towards the way that we view our world and the way that they view their world and how totally. that clashes today, like even totally. the same as 20 years ago. Even Peg takes the same stand telling Hank that he has no right to sell these artifacts. Not because they don't belong to him, but because they half belong to her. I don't recall a moment before this where they introduced Bobby's project, but this is when Bobby's education, and it turns out that he's actually doing a project on exactly that. Mm -hmm. I feel like that was unclear to us as a viewer, and I think that might have been a, maybe it may have been the point, because Hank had started this whole mess before that was an obvious plot point. Like, if they started the episode with with Bobby and Luann making yeah. chicken necklaces, then we would have been on board that, oh, this episode is is that themed because Bobby's, epi- Bobby's 
school is going on at the end. Revolves around it. Similar to the Company Man episode. Yeah, how, yeah. But, um, but anyway, so because Peggy's really upset that Hank sold these things because she wanted it to be for Bobby's education. Totally. But, like, when she said that, I kind of assumed that she meant, like, to sell it for, like, like money for college, but then it turned out that he's actually... It's a Native American necklace like the Tonkawa War. I was going to bring in the arrowhead and get an A and maybe even go to college. But Mom says you sold out my future for $10. I hope you're happy. That's still Mom talking. <laughs> so the Tonkawa people are a Native American tribe indigenous to what is uh, present-day Texas. Now, the Tonkawa had a penchant for something known as cannibalism, which, uh, <laughs> which made them unpopular with, uh, <laughs> with anyone considered food. Yeah, so um, that, that, that gave rise to a lot of tension between like, other neighboring tribes and also... Like, but I thought they were mostly peaceful. That was the Kato, Kato's. <laughs> Not the Tonkawas. And yeah, so it made them... Uh, unpopular with the other Native American groups and also the new people of Texas. And uh, so this led to, like, many um, conflicts because they had some real fucking badass neighbors. Uh, The Comanches and the Apaches were, like, much bigger tribes. They were, like, fucking, like, more aggressive. They had way more people, and, like, they kind of... Where is this region? um, This is... Eastern Texas, I guess. Like uh, from o- the Red River is the border from uh, Oklahoma and Texas. So from there, east, like southeast towards uh, Louisiana. Oh, okay. Um, and in 1824, the Tonkawa, Tonkawa entered into a, a treaty with Stephen F. Austin to protect Anglo-American immigrants against, uh, against the Comanches. And in two separate occasions, the Tonkawa fought side by side with none other than the Texas Rangers. Damn. Yeah, so Stephen F. Austin is is known as the father of Texas. He was the first, or he was the second attempt at colonizing the state. So he was bringing people from the east into Texas. Yeah, Austin is west. What's that? Austin is pretty western. Mm-hmm. He obviously he's the name. Yeah, the namesake for Austin. Yeah, he's the namesake for Austin, and like a bunch of other stuff in Texas, he's named after. So he basically like contracted the Tonkawa people to be like bodyguards uh, for these. Because that would have been Indian territory. Yeah, probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah, west of the Mississippi. Yeah, and he, uh, yeah, he led the uh, the successful colonization of uh, of Texas, and he he didn't end up winning president of Texas. He lost that, but he was uh, he was really high so up. So this in is Texas. still back when it was a republic of Texas itself, rather than part of the 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 yeah, this colonies is prior to the Texas Revolution and all okay. that jazz. That's um that's actually interesting. I didn't know that Austin was. Uh, was that far out around that time? Mm-hmm. Uh, because I guess, I guess, yeah, it would have been maybe that actually would have made sense around the Alamo. Yeah, because like apparently just before that, it was just like super chaotic. Like the the state was run by like a Mexican government, and yeah. then there was also the feuding between the the immigrating Americans and the Native Americans and the Mexicans, and it was just a fucking well. If that's you, part to be. If you yeah. I'm not going to get too much into history, I guess. <laughs> so what you're saying is it would be a great place to just dig for lots artifacts. Lots of stuff happened. Lots of stuff happened. Yeah. There's lots of people there. Yeah, and apparently you can find shit like two inches under the grass. <laughs> I, I wasn't going to bring it up because Hank, but I mean, yeah, Hank did 
dig their last season member and put his yeah. new lawn in. So maybe the but you would He's think down a little farther. You than would most. think when the entire neighborhood went in that the ground was raised. I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah, I it don't know about weird. construction. It seems weird. So now we see the professor and a colleague of his show up to the Hill residence. Uh, Hank's not home, so of course he talks to the dumbass Peggy. And <laughs> with a few a few simple remarks, he sweet talks her into basically signing over the whole property into just fucking whatever he wants to do. It's a full-on archaeological dig site now. To be fair, Peggy thinks she's a friend of archaeology. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. He he really jumps on the fact that Peggy wants to be an intellectual. Oh, he knows, yeah. I thank you. Archaeology thanks you. And most of all, I want you to thank yourself. Oh, no, I couldn't. For advancing the cause of knowledge, Peggy? Come on now, I want to hear it. Well, thank you, Peggy Hill. Oh, my <laughs> God. <laughs> Watching this, like, Peggy annoys the hell out of me, like, 90% of, like, watching King of the Hill. But at this point, it was nearly a controller through the TV moment. Right? Yeah. <laughs> TV? <laughs> I just, didn't, you wa- didn't you watch it on your phone? <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> well, I nearly threw the fucking phone at the TV. <laughs> but, yeah, I love it. that. But then I love when Hank... Just barges out into the yard. Oh, yeah. Finding out who that is. And and then uh, says, okay, we're square after she says. Yeah, that's pretty tit for tat. Yeah, okay. And then I like that about Hank. You know, he's fair about it. He yeah. drops it immediately. Yeah. He, no longer is this about Peggy doing this. I like yeah. that. I think that's an interesting point. Um, so, but, and then, yeah, and Peggy, I love that Peggy just stares at him. Uh-huh. It just doesn't say anything. It just gets in the car and drives away. <laughs> I love because after she drives away, there's a deleted scene where Hank is just shouting. Oh, all I can say is sprinklers come on at 12 and there's nothing I can do about it. <laughs> I missed that. Oh, yeah, yeah, deleted. deleted scenes. And yeah. And then, and, and then it goes. But Why would they cut that? I don't know. But, That's awesome. Yeah, I thought it was pretty funny. A lot of these deleted scenes are mostly extended, and I think a lot of them could work just, just fine. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe they had a moment later where they wanted the sprinklers to come on, and that didn't pan out. I don't know. Yeah. But it's weird, though, with like more music than we're used to in season two and also no cold opening. You think they could have just extended that scene ten more seconds, but... They had a good story to tell in this one, and I feel like they didn't waste a second telling it. So I, I can understand a lot of cuts. I think... Um, this episode too, just as we're, as you mentioned the music again, it is a good, it is a good episode for music. I think this is a very good look at the Hill family again. Like we say, there's like interesting animations. There's, there's the first speaking role of Jonathan Joss. I think as far as season two goes, as much as I love the other two episodes, I feel like this is when... Because just having listened to them talk about making season one and season two, I feel like this has got to be that moment in production when they start seeing season one. You know, like I think they've probably at this point, like season one's probably on the air for a few episodes probably. Mm -hmm. And they're seeing them come back and they're seeing them go out and they're seeing them air and they're seeing the reception. I think this is probably... The epi- this episode is probably a reaction to what King of the Hill is now viewed as. Mm-hmm. I think this is pro- this, I think this is a good episode for that reason. 
And I was thinking about bringing this up later, um, but now that we're on the topic of the music, should I get this out? Sure, yeah, let's talk about music. Okay, because because I'm listening for the music in all of these shows, I found that they have a really good example of like what they do now with the music compared to what they do in previous episodes. I found in season one, they would focus more on one kind of theme for an episode, whereas like they would either rely on like one single acoustic guitar to play most of their things or one single, like or they sometimes they have the orchestra, like keeping up with our Joneses. Uh, but in this episode, they kind of brought it all together, and I found a really, really good example of that that I just want to play. Maybe before you play that, even, I just think the thought about when they got Skunk Baxter on there, like, the fact that he's only there for a few episodes makes me wonder if he was just come in to record a few things and have some ideas and then, like, get a general feel that they can reuse or use in different um, aspects. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, because he was really early on. Totally. Like I say, like, there was nobody, like, who knows why he agreed. Because mm-hmm. nobody would heard of King I mean, Beavis and Butthead, probably. Beavis yeah, and Butthead. probably liked the show and was then, like, huge. wanted to help out. So, yeah, but I mean, like, it, it does seem like they didn't know what they were doing for season one. And this season maybe seems, hopefully, hopefully they're coming together. I'm sure... Uh, Jeff Skunk Baxter was probably like Dane Greg Daniels' cousin or something at one point. It seems how everybody else gets involved. Yeah, he brought the American theme into uh, into this one. Reminds me of like Inspector Clouseau movies, like uh, the Pink Panther movies. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah, they have a lot of that kind of more detective-y themed music. But they have that James Bond guitar sound. Yeah, that's like what that kind of brings re- the Texas into it it's for like, me at least. Yeah, and that's the thing, James Bond, that theme, that like dun dun dun, dun it's all played on an acoustic guitar. Oh, but it's of course. it's extremely, it's recorded extremely like. Um, Close, I guess. I'm not music. I'm not musically technical, but like the 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 sound recording of it is different than you would record like a traditional classic guitar. Totally, it That's sounds why it, like you're right next to the. It's why it sounds like it has more reverb or a little bit more like power to it. Yeah, like and that's the same as in that it sounds like. Yeah, and like what I just really noticed is like there's three elements of it. There's like classic orchestral kind of sounds mixed with the, like the American style guitar. And then, you know, the the flute, which, like, played more of, like, a kind of Indian role. Yeah, I hear you. I, I like, I, I mean, like, yeah, I love the music in this show. And I really, I really hope that they further this understand, like, now that they have a better understanding, I hope going forward they expand upon our library yeah, of we, music we can use for interludes. <laughs> And then Hank and Peggy are woken from their sleep by some loud machines. And Peggy turns to Hank and he's like, I thought you told Dale not to mow this early. And like, as if Dale ever mows, like he's got the worst lawn in Harlan. 
it's clearly stated in the Rainy Block Charter that you can't mow your lawn before 7 a.m. So <laughs> Hank wrote it. <laughs> Hank wrote it. Um, so, yeah, they look out the window, and there's this backhoe just tearing up the the hills lawn just like hank is just so beside himself he's oh, he still thinks he's dreaming this yeah. is a nightmare <laughs> yeah. he's he screams his typical blah into the window for so long that it fogs up and he has to clear the fog away from the window again and continue screaming <laughs> and i like that that kind of that's how they show original acting because yes it's hank's signature scream but they add something else into it to make it just a little bit more Maybe they milk that last second or two out of it. Exactly. And, uh, of course, late, like a, a little bit later in the morning, they're all outside. Of course, the guys in the neighborhood is gathered around to see what is going on because there's a full crew of, like, 20-plus people, like, moving stuff, taping out the areas they're going to dig, already digging stuff up. And Boomhauer, of course, is going over the contract that Peggy foolishly signed uh, the day before. <laughs> And it's, it's dang old airtight, man. Yeah. <laughs> Therefore, after referred to as dang old life from ancient antiquities, pursuant to the public domain title 973 state resource code, but I'll tell you what, man, it's airtight. Boomhauer, I didn't understand a word you just said. Damn legalese. <laughs> uh, Bill brings up a good point after how this is very similar to the situation for the Native Americans. And, uh, uh, this is, I guess, the first time that's called out, but that's a thing that's obviously at odds this entire episode. Um, yeah, and Bill, of all people, is the first one to bring it up, and he's super emotional about it. He ends up shedding a tear and getting all... Uh, he does. There's the zoom in and the, like, shed of just the single tear cry for the Indian. Um, that's actually, I believe, in reference to a 1970s uh, public service announcement about pollution, uh, how it basically follows a uh, indigenous man as he canoes through a, a waterway watching a bunch of factories spew pollution into the air and then the end of it says man creates pollution and then it zooms in on just the single tear from from the the elder mm-hmm. in the canoe and yeah, I think it's just, I think that's what it is. It has that kind of music, too. Mm-hmm. That's that's just one more thing I know that I learned from The Simpsons. They also uh, par- they? parody that in uh, the I, episode, You Only Move Twice. I wonder if that Anthrax song is <laughs> in reference to that PSA as well, because as soon as I saw Bill cry, I thought about Anthrax and the song <laughs> Indians. <laughs> it's a good one. It's, it's a, a banger. It's a good song. It's a good song. see our second very brief appearance at Luan in this episode. <laughs> uh, it's while uh, two of the archaeologists are removing Hank's privacy shed and we see Luan <laughs> shrub. Uh, we see Luan shaving her legs. Uh, Hank is, of course, terrified. With Hank's razor. Yeah, and she goes to say, Uncle Hank, I borrowed your razor. <laughs> and that is the final straw for Hank in this scene. He just loses it. Threatens to sue. Uh, he's, dro- he's dropping all everything. He's playing lawyer ball. You are sued, mister. You're all witnesses. 
And you're all being sued, too. And you're the witness to that. <laughs> so now we see Peggy and the professor in the backyard, and Peggy's trying to show off her intellectual prowess to him. And he well, fun- She's uncovering the... Or he's uncovering the pot. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and, and she suspects it's a clay pot. Yeah. I think it's a clay pot. More likely a ceramic bowl. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You may be right. Yes. Would you excuse me? Oh, this... And then this... This leads her to invite him over for dinner sometime. Yeah. <laughs> Don't turn dinner into school, Peggy. Dinner's one of the few things Bobby's good at. And he's right. Hank's <laughs> <laughs> not wrong. Bobby's very good with a knife and fork. And this is the Peggy and Hank arguing over whether or not they should uh, have the professor over for dinner. And, of course... Uh, Peggy just worships the ground he walks on because he's got a bunch of, you know, letters before his name. <laughs> and, yeah. and he gets, uh, he eventually does get invited over for dinner. And um, it's funny because you can tell, like, throughout this dinner scene that Peggy has very clearly instructed Bobby to, uh, like, hang on every word that he says and to continue asking questions and say, tell me more, professor, and all that sort of stuff. And the professor says that he got his first PhD from, from the University of Chicago. That's one of the finest schools in the country. School? They don't even have a football team. <laughs> uh, so, of course, the only thing that matters in college to Hank is college football, obviously. And he's, he's wrong. Uh, the University of Chicago does have a football team called the Maroons, which plays in the NCAA Div- Division III uh, Midwest Conference. But what Hank is probably... Uh, talking about here is that originally the University of Chicago was a founding member of the Big Ten Conference and up until 1939 they were a huge uh, football program in the United States when uh, the university president Robert Maynard Hutchins decided that big time college football and the university's commitment to academics were not a good fit and the football program was abolished up until 1973 when it returned uh, on the much smaller scale. But people hypothesized that if they would have just stuck around for all that time, they would have been one of the top 10, you know, top 25 dominant programs in the entire country. But uh, they're Div 3 with a 1,600-seat uh, stadium. After that, the professor asked Bobby if he likes football, and he goes on to explain that the Cato tribe actually had a game that was similar to football called Chunky. Now, I don't know anything about that, but I think the historian, you did, you looked it up? I, ha- I did some research. I took my historian duties serious. And, yeah, so first, the Cato. Um, they're the earliest set- settlers of that region, of East Texas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, Arkansas. Um, and they've been, they have history in East Texas dating back uh, from 200 BCE. Until 800, Common Era. So, like, quite a long time. Like, really long time. Um, I'm not sure. I actually kind of looked. I didn't really see what happened around 800. But the fact that you talked about the Tonkawa makes me think that maybe there was just some other tribe moving around. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a whole lot in this region I actually looked up. But, yeah, this is the Cato that they were talking about mostly. Yep. Um, Chunky is a game played by a lot of uh, tribes around that area and all the way up. But it did um, originate around Missouri tribes, up north, more northern and around uh, St. Louis. But it was uh, it's a game of Native American origin uh, played by rolling a disc-shaped stone across the ground and throwing a spear at them. 
uh, trying to get as close to the stop where the stone stops as possible. Uh, the it's game like a badass version of bocce. Yeah, it's like I don't know if it. Um, it's hard to understand if there's two. Like if you throw the stone and then throw the spear, oh. or if I don't know if somebody else throws the stone. Yeah, like I only saw. I looked up some pictures, and it just looked like shuffleboard. None of that was helpful. So. Oh yeah, no, it's not like shuffleboard. It's more like it's more like lawn darts or 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 even horseshoes, but mm. with a movable. It's like bocce with a jack. Yeah. You throw the jack, and then you throw the ball. But I guess you throw. It makes it sound like you throw them both at similar times. Yeah. So you hit the disc with the spear, and that's going to be a chunky right there. <laughs> <laughs> um. But yeah. So it was. It. I guess they found that they found that it's originated around 600 um, common era. Chunky was played in huge arenas as large as 47 acres. How's great audiences designed to bring people to that region? So like, I think that's kind of interesting that they had like a, a sport and it would mostly be whenever uh, it was mostly in uh, the season would have been when weather was good, but crops weren't necessary. Like other things weren't, Pre- such pressing matters. They had free time. Yeah, it was seen as as a luxury for sure. Um, the they translated the name to mean running hard labor, <laughs> which I guess to like to me just kind of means that they just said chunky like we say sport, because you know like to me sport means running hard labor. Yeah. Like it's like oh yeah if I go do a sport, it's running hard labor, and I guess there's even like they can uh, there's records that say that gambling is frequently connected to it. No way. Yeah, they had, like, a whole, like, gambling uh, culture around it, and it was huge. People, there's, like, records where people bet everything they own, as well as losers were frequently known to commit suicide. Like, they had all that culture around this game back then. Just like gambling today. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, like, and I mean, yeah, it's uh, it's it's pretty interesting. It seems like it was played by most cultures. It sounds like a good time, and like you could go cross tribe with it, maybe. Right. I mean, I wonder if horseshoes came from something similar. You know, like exactly. I mean, it it sounds like the same idea. Yeah. Lots of games are similar. Curling is basically that, except you don't throw the point, the button. Sorry. All those people listening who know curling very well, I know it's the button. I don't need your emails. (laughs) So after all this talk at the dinner table, uh, eventually uh, Professor Lerner overstays his welcome and Hank has to kick him out. Huh. Kind of like aloha. It means hello and goodbye. Well, actually, it's more like... Well, aloha. Goodbye. Yeah. So yeah, finally the hills get rid of this pompous fucking uh, professor archaeologist. But before that, he just uh, quickly invites Peggy and Bobby if they want to come and help out around the site tomorrow, of course, because he knows the way to uh, be trouble-free in Hank's lawn is through Peggy and uh, also through Bobby. Well, he gives the bracelet to Peg, doesn't he? Not yet. Oh, no, he hasn't yet. But this is when the But bracelet, he shows it off. The bracelet is noticed, yeah. All right. Bobby thinks it's quite funny that a man is wearing jewelry. <laughs> like, it's funny, like PBS. Yeah, yeah, like PBS. And then, of course, the next scene is the professor given a field trip to a bunch of, like, elementary students. I guess Bobby's class. Yeah, it'd be Bobby's I guess that's probably part class. of his agreement is that he's going to take Bobby's social studies class. 
Is that what they call it? It only looks like a select few from Bobby's class. It doesn't look like a whole class is there. And I love that Peggy answers all of his questions. Please enlighten <laughs> like, us. <laughs> it's good. Um, so actually in the deleted scenes is he in, he's annoyed with Peggy answering the question. So he calls on a student. And what student does he call upon? Joseph. <laughs> he points right at Joseph and says, I bet you can tell me. No. <laughs> and I love it because, because like, like Joseph realizes and he's just like, I don't know. And then he whispers to Bobby. He's like, they always call on me when I'm not paying attention. <laughs> like, he had no idea. <laughs> None of the kids are. Paying any attention, and Peggy's just answering all the questions yeah, for them. Yeah, sounds about the way Peggy would teach. <laughs> it's uh, it's pretty good. So after that fun-filled field trip, the next scene is uh, back at the Hill residence, and Hank is in bed watching action sports. Well, he's already watched action yeah, sports. Sorry, Peg's missed it. Peggy missed action sports and half of action weather. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> really screwing up the routine at the Hill house. Um, Peggy goes on to you know describe her day. She tells Hank that. Bobby uh, now knows his cat didn't run away because I guess they dug him up. Dug up the cat. I just think that's interesting. We didn't know that the Hills had a cat. Yeah, I think this was a one-off joke. It's, I don't think it's ever spoken of again. Or yeah, uh, I, I mean, just... it is. It does seem a bit dark. I think, especially because like you could have an entire episode around <laughs> Bobby being distraught that his cat hadn't actually run away. Yeah, I think this cat, too, would probably be more of, like, maybe just a stray cat that lived in the neighborhood because Hank would probably never have a cat. Yeah. I mean, he dis despises them. But anyway, that was the, the point of the dig. The joke was made. And then he takes a look at the window and sees the stadium lights. And then Peggy says, yeah, just like the Dallas Cowboys. The Cowboys would treasure my lawn, not turn it into some kind of a freak show. Last I checked... I thought Hank hated the Cowboys. Well, they know how to treat a lawn with respect. <laughs> I'd hope so, I guess. <laughs> hey, actually, by this point, all that other stuff was alleged. But he does notice that it's starting to rain out there. And Peggy takes it upon herself <laughs> to tell the professor, who's presumably out in the rain, like, also aware of the weather, also aware that his sobs roof is down. <laughs> like, why is it Peggy's turn to tell him? Like, you know, they don't make sobs no more. Uh, didn't. Yeah, the company went defunct in 2012. No way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, R.I.P. Sob. I mean, the more I've seen, the most sobs in Seinfeld. Yeah, Seinfeld, and I think James Bond drives one uh, for a few movies. Take that back. He does. Really? Which one? <laughs> Which movie? I don't know the actual movie, but I know he drives the same car that Jerry has, but, like, 20 years older and, like, all turboed and stuff. It's a Saab 900. Do you know which Bond? No, I don't. But I know he drives one because it, like, totally bumped up Saabs in the 70s. <laughs> I mean, this, yeah, every time I hear a Saab, I think of Jerry Seinfeld. And then this is where we really feel Hank's jealousy start to come through. Oh, and he it comes through in the form of a bracelet. <laughs> Exactly. So now Hank has a problem, and he's got to take care of a problem. But Hank's not, doesn't know. So Hank says the problem's his lawn, but the problem is, I mean, yes, we know that, that is important to him, but we are also going to believe, we know that how important Peggy is to him, especially after the Twister episode. Exactly. Right? So if we're to believe all this happens in secession, then yeah, like he's, you know, like we do buy that. So Totally. But he's not willing to admit that. 
outright. Exactly. So outwardly, he has to say it's his lawn. If he was able to just sit down with Peg and say, hey, I'm uncomfortable with this, then it, the crisis averted. Instead, he takes his frustrations out in the garage. I guess that's why we don't write a television series around that character. Who <laughs> <laughs> has a meaningful discussion with his wife. My Nancy's going to Corpus Christi this weekend for some migraine workshop. I'm suspicious as hell. See ya, Shug. Feel better. Bring me back a shot glass. Good thing John Redcorn's going with her. He can keep an eye on things. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm so glad John Redcorn's back. We haven't had, <laughs> we haven't heard him blast any uh, any hair mail out of his tan Jeep uh, YJ in some time. And of course, this time it's feel like making love. I feel like he's this is his burn. This is his tape that he's made himself. Like he's. Oh, yeah. This is, this is, this is, we've heard them play this before. <laughs> of course, I don't need to describe the lyrics to this song. The title is pretty <laughs> obvious stuff, but what uh, John Redcorn's ulterior motives of this trip to Corpus Christi are. Uh, but Feel Like Making Love is a song by British band Bad Company. The song was released on the LP Straight Shooter in April 1975 and was also released as a single in August of that same year. The song peaked at number 10 on the US Billboard Hot 100 chart, and VH1 went on to vote the song as the 78th best hard rock song of all time. The song was covered many times, and it was also parodied by Weird Al Yankovic in the song Feel Like Throwing Up. (laughs) 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 Bad Company's actually, they were signed to Swan Song. So um, Swan Song is Led Zeppelin's label. And Led Zeppelin didn't sign much. They pretty much only found Bad Company. And that's it. Like, pretty much. They just, it was Bad Company forever. Led Zeppelin, yeah, just were fans. Because they were like considered a super group, right? Like it was half the guys from Free, uh, some guys from Mott the Hoople. I think the guitar player was oh, okay, from Mott the really. Hoople. Yeah, that would make sense. I I love Mott the Hoople. Yeah, it was. I think three different or fragments of three different bands into what it was. Uh, you know what? You actually just blew my mind. Um, <laughs> there's there's a, this this is totally unrelated now to the podcast and I'm just thinking because fucking there was a while ago when uh, Victoria was like what is this song I think it's something like this and it, it ended up being this song I mistook it for a Mott the Hoople song which is very similar to this and I like and that is I always get those wires crossed in my head when I think of this song and I can't remember that Mott the Hoople song right now uh, well that I don't, I don't know the song either, but that makes a lot of sense because apparently the, the dude who had originally written this song was one of the two members from the band that were in Free, and he had written it like 10 years prior, and then when they came together as Bad Company, he brought the song to the guitar player from Matt the Hoople, or Mott the Hoople, and he was the one who put in those epic, uh, like, down, down, down in the chorus and changed it from, I guess, a twangy, more country song into the, like, arena rock yeah. anthem that it was that makes a lot of sense actually i really i'm glad that you told me that that's that's a i'm happy about that that's good it's good i learned something here nice we always learn something yeah class. oh just also while we're on the disc while it came up in this episode it also come up in my history class this week corpus christi it actually means uh body of christ it is corpus christi is, is the body of christ that you eat the wafer. at you know, the wafer at communion um, and I'd learned a little bit about that in history and I spent a while looking it up because I guess there's like the, the industry around those who buys those wafers and who makes those wafers is pretty cutthroat <laughs> and like, it like is borderline like slave labor. No it's crazy. It's crazy. You need to look it up. But anyway, so when Corpus Christi came up, I was just like, 
it clicked, and I was like, oh, that's fun. Body of Christ. I heard it before, but... Yeah, that's interesting. I never heard that before, or I even you know thought that it was actually anything else. You but... know what Corpus, you know where it is, and it's like oil, Texas. Yeah. Yeah. But um, before we end this little segment, I can't not forget to bring in the fact that at the beginning of this, when Dale uh, accuses Hank of being jealous about the professor, Hank insists that he's actually thinking about cheese logs. (laughs) (laughs) But this scene uh, leads into Hank deciding to make a little uh, history project of his own inside the, inside the shop there. Yeah. I wonder what grade Hank would have got on that. (laughs) B plus for sure. You think so? I mean, Peggy would have given it an A, but who is he interrupted by? Bill. Uh, yeah. Bill. No, other than Bill. Like, what's Bill doing in Hank's garage at like 9 p.m.? He's like, eating the chicken. Well, <laughs> Hank's had his dinner. He, must he ain't messing that up. <laughs> he must have smelled it. Yeah. <laughs> no, Hank called him. Hank oh. said, hey, I'll buy the chicken. I just need somebody uh, to eat oh, it. Just, him and Ladybird, they can't eat after eight. I didn't read into that. I was just like, what the fuck? is Bill doing no, there? He needs, he needs Bill there to eat the chicken. Okay. I love the obvious point here that is being made that Hank is spending all this time and energy and like using his tools to yeah. make what Bobby was essentially making. Yeah, which he could have been doing with Bobby. Exactly. <laughs> it's funny because he's doing this strictly to plant it to make the professor look like an idiot. But it's funny because Bill's there, and Bill only has advice about how to deal with possums. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What are you making? I'm making a problem go away. Uh Uh-huh. What, you got possums? Nope. This jerk archaeologist who... You know what works for me. You slip a cap full of arsenic into a side of bacon. Well, that would be murder, Bill. (laughs) (laughs) How many times has he had to deal with possums? <laughs> well, only once. This is funny because last night I watched an episode of Parks and Rec that revolves around possums. I think Greg Daniels thinks possums are funny. <laughs> Jonathan Joss was in Parks and Rec, wasn't he? He was. Damn right. So I believe now this is where we have the scene where that cool music that you played earlier uh, lays yeah. with Beave. It's the very haunting, mischievous sound of Hank uh uh, sneaking out to his own lawn in the middle of the night to plant this uh, this necklace that he worked so hard on making. And then, of course, the horrific scene of Bill in his house coat <laughs> eating chicken. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, Bill is like the happiest we've ever seen him in the series. He's probably drunk. He's got a free bucket of chicken. And he just gives the biggest thumbs up ever. <laughs> He's also probably pretty glad that someone else has like is up. At this point where he's probably just looking for a friend at, like, midnight on a Tuesday or whatever. Yeah, Bill averages four hours sleep a night. But after Hank plants the necklace, I hate how obvious he is in just the very next scene. Like, you should dig over there. give it away. I don't like that. Not even, like, that was a weak cover-up with the fishing analogy. It is, yeah. It is a pretty, it's pretty weak, yeah. He could have baited him better. You know, hook, line, and sinker. We'll get it. Hey, hold up. That's a couple weeks. Okay. <laughs> but I like. But he's instantly wise. I do like that. That they don't undercut that. Like, not. <clears throat> it's not just that Peggy interrupts because she finds it. It's that the professor already knows Hank's. This is obviously a ruse from Hank. And that's how he plays up. But up on it when Peggy does find it, because then. And that's mean. And it. He. Mean. I love it because he gets to. He gets to patronize her, like, in front of 
everybody, and she's been bugging him all fucking week. And she's so dumb. She's just so eager to spout off what she thinks it is. Well, they're bones, and they're the size of fingers, so I just put two and two together, and I added a thumb. And everybody just proceeds to roast her. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's it's not even just roasting by one person. It's like the entire archaeological <laughs> yeah, like everybody team. Everybody take your turn. Gets yeah. a turn to be like, describe what exactly the necklace is from, I, I guess they get the twine wrong, but they know it's chicken bones. <laughs> they know it's been like scuffed up by a belt sander. They know this and that. Blowtorch. Yeah. But yeah, kite string. And then Hank just, oh, I am such an idiot. <sighs> Don't you believe it, Peggy. They're not so smart. I didn't use kite string. I used bailing twine. Ha! (laughs) (laughs) I love it. And then, but then this is kind of when Peggy realizes that Hank's been jealous. Like, he went to this, this far out of jealousy. Yeah. And that made, that made her kind of realize, like... No! I was just, uh... Mad because you were spending all your time with that guy, and uh, I wanted you to spend it with me. Jealousy had nothing to do with it. Ooh. Oh, Hank, I have something in my eye, but I am also crying. <laughs> it's funny the lengths that Hank's, Hank goes to, to, you know, to try and get rid of this problem, where like I think he probably should have just called up Cotton from Houston and got him uh, coming. Fire up, roll, come flying out of his caddy with a 20-gauge shotgun. <laughs> no more eggheads. <laughs> yeah, he'd tear that Easterner up real good. But yeah, like, I mean, the end of the episode here is just basically Hank not push... Him and, Hank and Peg make up, and then Hank just pushes the archaeologist back into the pit. The archaeologist archaeologist there, Dr. Uh, John Lerner, definitely crosses a line here when he says... Sounds like I could have scored with your wife for the price of a fake bracelet. What? (laughs) Definitely. So that's the first of, what, I think five or six times he gets tossed back into the hole? Yeah. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, the first few times it's Hank, and I think it's the last one that Hank pushes him on is what really got me. You know what's ironic about this? You're the one who looks stupid right now. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, he could go to any other exit of that hole. Yeah. <laughs> it's a big hole. Um, before we leave the episode, um, there was a deleted scene that I thought really pertained earlier to um, – we missed – it's when Hank and Peg get into bed and they find that Hank is totally against this. And Peggy says, well, at least Bobby gets a new role model out of this. And Hank's, Hank's just not having that. He says, we both have to agree what we are going to force him to do with his life. <laughs> I, I just think that that is so perfect because oh, yeah. they are so on board to do that. Yeah. that that's what they do. Oh, yeah. But <laughs> they need to agree. <laughs> so I guess that brings this episode to a close. Is there any uh, final thoughts, anything else we wanted to go over before we close it out for the day? I can start here. Um, heading into this Order of the Straight Or meeting, I was really annoyed with it, and I was really just not a fan of this episode. I mean, it had its moments, but now we've dissected it a little bit more and discussed it. I see there is more credence to it and that it, it does serve a purpose, but it definitely reminded me of an early season one episode with the pacing, the music, and that it was kind of just like uh, a utility episode. There was It wasn't just 
uh, humor based. It was more, uh, they were really trying to tell a story in this one. And I'm still a little kind of perplexed as to what that story was, but I, I don't know. I've learned a lot more. Yeah, I, I, I do like it. I think the story just brings it back to those episodes that this really is about Hank. And this is just another look back at Hank. And those episodes, I they might seem a little one-minded and not super memorable. But I think if you are watching this show episode by episode, these are those episodes that really hammer home that this is about Hank. And this is just another way to poke and prod at the things that bring Hank into an interesting space. Like bringing him a college or sorry, a university professor who's going to want to dig around his property because he took advantage of Hank and Peg. Right. So that's a good, that's a good idea to put Hank into that place. Yeah, definitely. Like, as you're saying, it is very story based, but it doesn't really affect the overall arcing story of King of the Hill. It doesn't progress rainy street any further, but it is one of those episodes where it's a Hank Peggy conflict and he shows how much he loves her, but it's a different side because usually, because we keep seeing different sides of how Hank appreciates Peggy and how in this one we just get to see the more kind of jealousy side of it, right? With like another man involved. You do get to see what Peggy thinks a lot more in this episode than any other, I think. Like, because even the Boggle one revolves around her doing her thing, mm-hmm. but her problem is that Hank is is not, not supporting. Not supporting that. Yeah. This one is that she's finding that validation that she's an intellect elsewhere and Hank can't even if he wanted to like even when he even in the boggle episode he says she's the smartest one he knows yeah exactly right but that's not good enough no right because that doesn't mean nothing coming from Hank to her so like this is like you know she does want that and that's been Mentioned in other episodes, yeah. yeah. So I think this is a good... This is actually a deceptively good Peggy episode, now that I'm talking about it. I guess so. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> it gives her character a pretty good... Uh, I like I like this part. I like that. Yeah, she was fun to laugh at in this one. I, I didn't find... My, <laughs> I didn't yeah. find myself mad at her. More just like, oh yeah, Peggy's stupid. That uh, is You fun. gotta give her a break. It is funny because about the time that Hank washes his hands of being mad at Peg in this episode is about the same time the audience does. Mm-hmm. You know, like you feel like that is fair totally. when Hank says we're we're square. Yeah, you're like all right, like you no longer blame Peggy for this because we also know that she's been duped. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yes, she has. I really like that Hank doesn't hold that against her. Yeah, I think that's a, I think this is a good episode. Oh yeah, nothing nothing bad about this episode. So. With that, thank you for joining us on the Order of the Straight Arrow, and we will see you next time. We're Tanya! Thank you very much. Want to hear more Order of the Straight Arrow? Join the conversation on Twitter at Utsakothpod or follow us on Instagram at Utsakothpod or look for us on Facebook at Order of the Straight Arrow, a King of the Hill podcast. Catch new episodes every Sunday night. Please share this podcast with your friends and feel free to contact us by email at utsakothpod at gmail.com. Please, no hate mail. Hey, what you crying for, boy? It's a good show. This is a damn good show. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are our own and in no way reflect the views and opinions of Mike Judge, Greg Daniels, or Fox Studios. 
The external audio used in this podcast is not owned by the Order of the Straight Arrow or its affiliates and is presented in good faith to its copyright owners. Please don't sue us. Thank you.